Good evening, and welcome to Northminster. My name is Zachary Helton, and I am one of the co-pastors at this church. In each of our worship services, we begin by reiterating that when we say, you are welcome, we mean it. And that's a reiteration that I want to extend into this space. Each of you carries within you a divine spark, a Holy Spirit, that shines through the unique lens of your life. You embody God in a way that no one else can, so we need you to get a fuller picture of God in this space. So we mean it when we say, thank you for your participation. Good evening, I'm Claire Helton, the other co-pastor of Northminster. We wanna offer a special thank you tonight to our Education Commission, chaired by Craig Henry, for their work in bringing this lecture series to life, even in the midst of a pandemic. The Strickland Lectures in Church History were inaugurated in 1997 to honor the legacy of Dr. Tom Strickland, a founding member of Northminster and professor of history at the University of Louisiana Monroe. Since then, Northminster has invited distinguished lecturers to comment on aspects of church history as they are relevant to our identity and work in the present cultural moment. And I cannot think of a more appropriate topic for this cultural moment than religious freedom. And I can think of no more appropriate lecturer on that subject than Dr. Welton Gaddy, our pastor emeritus at Northminster Church and president emeritus of the Interfaith Alliance in Washington, DC. In recent history, not only has religious liberty in the United States been under attack, but the very idea of religious liberty has been diluted and redefined. We hear the term and we come up with images of bakeries refusing to do cakes for same-sex weddings or private businesses seeking exception to the regulation providing contraceptives to employees. We hear the voices of those seeking to claim a religious liberty to deny civil rights or consolidate power under the guise of a theological mandate. What was designed as a safeguard against oppression has become, in the hands of some, a tool for that very oppression. The erosion of Jefferson's wall between church and state threatens the freedom of all Americans who do not claim as their identity a very narrow idea of evangelical Christianity. For years, Dr. Welton Gaddy has been a tireless agent of education and advocacy for this crucial separation of church and state, and for the preservation of religious liberty as defined by the U.S. Constitution. What's more, Dr. Gaddy is, at the same time, a very effective pastor, able to clearly and compassionately articulate the immediate and practical implications of this struggle for those in the pews and behind pulpits. Tonight's lecture is the first of three installments to take place over this weekend. The second will be tomorrow afternoon at 3 p.m., followed by a live Q&A over Zoom. Registration for that Q&A is free, but the Zoom link is only available with registration. So if you would like to join us for that, please go to northmen.org lectures and follow the directions there. Our third session will be Sunday morning at 11 a.m. as Dr. Gaddy delivers his final address in the context of Northminster's service of worship. One final note about the format of tonight's lecture. One of the benefits of this medium is that there will be a running live chat during the lectures. And that means if you have any questions or comments that you would like for us to address in tomorrow's Q&A, 
please make use of that chat feature, though we do ask that you not engage in conversations or debates that could be distracting during the lecture. And now without further ado, it is our honor to welcome into the pulpit Dr. Welton Gaddy for his first lecture, Religious Freedom, Eternal Vigilance. Religious freedom has often been called America's greatest gift to the world. Across the years, I have watched with thanksgiving the importance of this gift, both strengthening the foundation of our democracy in the United States and in giving hope to the dire need for this freedom in multiple places around the globe. As the Hill publication wrote sometime back, religious freedom is indeed the foremost right for people around the world because it protects what makes us human. I first learned the difficulty of protecting religious freedom in the early 1970s while working for Southern Baptists as Director of Christian Citizenship Development and a non-governmental organization representative to the United Nations. Later, while serving a senior minister of a church in Texas, I encountered the earliest onslaught of the religious right and its leader's intent to secure this country as a Christian nation, though that description of our government was a myth. In 1982, a trip to Romania and Hungary opened my eyes to the brutal punishment of Christians inflicted by communist governments that punished religions, bulldozed Christian church buildings into the earth, monitored every move of congregations to keep religious people under the government's strict control. Before entering Romania, military personnel spread out our suitcases on the ground and searched everything in them to see if we had Bibles with us that they wanted to destroy. Our hotel rooms were bugged. There was no freedom. Ironically, though, while driving across the country or touring in the area, our guide said, over there is what we call Freedom Valley. It's where early Baptists lived and practiced freedom as a part of their religion. In the 1980s, while working with International Baptists, I often hurt as I listened to my friends' stories of the pain that accompanied their faith. Disturbing images of the fragments of people's failed attempts to crawl over the Berlin Wall remain in my mind. In the 1980s, with friends from Northminster Church, I should say in the 1990s, friends from Northminster Church. 
I went with them and experienced the courage, ministries, and sparsity of food, money, and freedom alongside giant portions of faith and love among our Christian brothers and sisters in Cuba. Little was said about living in the difficulties of Castro's regime and regular investigations of their church. Despite the sparsity of freedom, our new friends in Cuba humbly modeled their unique kind of inclusive religious freedom. I worked in Washington, D.C., was filled with friendships among a vast variety of religions and numerous non-religious persons. Knowing both groups were leery, sometimes fearful, of the intimidating power of one religion in the United States. Reza Aslan, author of the book, How to Win a Cosmic War, credited religious freedom abroad and at home as the reason Muslims in the United States were not attracted to jihadism as their European counterparts were. The State Department uh, frequently invited me to lead briefings for religious leaders from other lands. Uh, whether meeting with uh, Kurds, uh, Afghans, uh, Iranian ayatollahs, the first question visitors always ask was, will you tell us about your religious freedom? Religious freedom has been our nation's gift to the world, as well as the soul of our democracy. But Newsweek magazine recently wrote an important piece entitled, Religious Freedom is America's Greatest Export, and it's under attack. Stepping behind this lectern and speaking the first words of the 2020 Strickland Lectures fills me with a mixture of gratitude and humility. There's nowhere else that I would prefer to share my lifelong conviction about the importance of religious freedom as I learned it in the always cold, moist, rough brick basement of West Paris Baptist Church in Paris, Tennessee. That far right of fundamentalism church taught me the importance of religious freedom. I have been incredibly blessed, and I don't use that word mechanically as people mumble, have a blessed day. Blessed to have the pleasure to pastor a church that when formed not only had a commitment to religious freedom, but also a devotion to that freedom in its covenant. We commit to the principle of a free church in a free state 
and to the opposition to any effort by either church or state to use the other for its own purposes. The congregation renews devotion to that covenant every year. Years later in our journey together, neither the church nor I could have imagined it. The congregation voted for me to remain a pastor after I had accepted the leadership of Interfaith Alliance, the board of which also was gracious enough to allow me to travel the United States periodically and to go abroad periodically and advocate for religious freedom. From our first times together, after coming to Monroe, I respected Dr. Tom Strickland and quickly became grateful for the man who this church honored by establishing these lectures in his name. I also had similar sentiments for one of Tom's best friends and colleague, Dr. Scott Legan, the man whose idea it was to establish this lectureship in honor of Tom Strickland. Not only did Tom uh, teach religious freedom academically in his history classes, he kept a sharp watch on the church as well as the community to be sure that we were being faithful to our first freedom. And I must tell you as well that Marge Strickland, Tom's wife and our church's incredible, invaluable longtime pianist, shared his commitment to religious freedom. My first thoughts about religious freedom revolve around how soon we forget. Religious freedom has never been secure in this nation. Uh, you know the history. Though the, most of the first immigrants were members of a religious minority that had experienced discrimination and victimization as a minority religion, oppressed by uh, the majority religions where they were, they came here to experience religious freedom. However, once they felt at home here, these same people quickly moved to make their religion an established religion that denied freedom and rights to those in the minority. Stephen Wallman, in his book, Sacred Liberty, documented the little-told terror perpetrated by the pilgrims. In the, 19, in the 1600s, Virginia had made it a crime for parents to refuse to have their children baptized. Massachusetts hanged people for being Quakers. In 1838, the governor of Missouri issued Executive Order 44 calling for the extermination of Mormons. Baptist ministers were thrown into jails for not purchasing a license for preaching the gospel. And when the Declaration of Independence was signed, nine of the 13 colonies barred Catholics and Jews from holding offices. 
Protestant mobs burned convents, sacked churches, and collected the teeth of deceased nuns for souvenirs during anti-Catholic riots in the 1930s. Hundreds of thousands of Africans were brought to America and stripped not only of their freedom, but also of their religion. Because of the power grab of traveling the prevailing religions, no sooner had the Constitution been adopted than a, a ragtag diversity of people, uh, Jews, atheists, humanists, Baptists, freethinkers, Unitarians, Seventh-day Adventists, and a few others, united to demand an amendment to the Constitution that would secure religious freedom for every citizen. Thankfully, the architects of this new government were well aware that historically, every time institutions of religion and government had become entangled, both were compromised sadly to the point of losing their integrity. So not only did the nation's founders readily adopt religious freedom, they made our first freedom the foundation on which to construct all other freedoms and rights in our government. So what is religious freedom? If you listen to no other part of these lectures, please, please hear the definition of religious freedom that was detailed in two short clauses of the First Amendment to the Constitution. First, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. The Establishment Clause means that neither the United States government nor a state's government can make one religion preferable over another or make religion preferable over non-religion. No establishment of religion means there will be no state religion. The government must remain neutral in matters of religion. No branch of our government is to promote religious doctrines, values, and worldviews. It's against the law for any part of government to pass a law that prefers or aids one religion over others or seeks to impose religion on any citizen. Public money cannot be used to fund religions. Religious freedom means freedom for religion and freedom from religion. The No Establishment Clause means that every citizen can enjoy the equal rights and privileges of this nation regardless of his or her views on religion. Second, Congress shall make no law prohibiting the free exercise of religion. In the Free Exercise Clause, founders of our nation said yes to the free exercise of religion and no to any person or institution impinging upon, compromising, or destroying another person's freedom. That principle applies to every American. Any citizen 
can reject religion, but nobody, no American has the right, the freedom to threaten or eradicate another individual's freedom or lack of religion or anyone's practice of religion. In other words, your religious freedom stops where your exercise of religious freedom imposes on my religious freedom. Now, for believers, this means that our right to believe cannot be impinged upon in any way, but our right to act on our beliefs can be addressed and prohibited by the government. If I am a biblical literalist who believes God is commanding me to sacrifice my child, the law does not allow me to act on my faith. The law of the land does not permit me to murder even if I say to them, God told me I needed to kill this person because he or she is so evil. Two clauses in the First Commandment to the Constitution define the meaning of religious freedom in our Constitution. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Congress shall make no law prohibiting the free exercise of religion. I tell you, every time I read those words written so long ago, I am amazed at the foresight of our founders who gave us a formula for cooperation that is honestly even more important today uh, amid the grand diversity of religions and people with no religion who make up the citizens of this nation. Synonymous with the concept of religious freedom is the metaphor of the wall of separation between church and state. That image of this sacred rite came from the pen of Thomas Jefferson in a letter he wrote to Danbury Baptists who had raised questions about the First Amendment. Jefferson made clear that the First Amendment to the Constitution erected a wall between church and state. Now that wall language has been misunderstood. Religious freedom in our nation is about far more than churches. It's equally relevant to mosques, shrines, temples, synagogues, gurdwaras. Let me be clear that the principle of the separation of church and state does not mean individuals must separate faith and politics or government-related decisions in their minds. This wall in the Constitution applies to institutions, not individuals. I actually rarely use the metaphor anymore, though I value its meanings. The wall, as I see it, is to be high enough and wide enough that no government funds can be given to, uh, to religious institutions and no religious institutions can control uh, the purse strings and process of government. 
What's more, uh, the wall should be low enough and narrow enough that both government and religion can see over it and talk to each other so that government and religion uh, can come together and strengthen civil rights, to encourage charitable giving, to promote the public welfare, and to enhance the common good. Now, one more word about the Constitution, and it's an important one. Flying back and forth between Washington, D.C. and Monroe, Louisiana every week, I often flew with our elected representative to the United States Congress. I think during my tenure that involved three or maybe four different representatives. One morning when I was seated next to our congressman, I noticed him repeatedly looking over my shoulder to try to see the name of the book I was reading. Finally, uh, as we were touching down in Atlanta, he said, I'm, I'm bothered by the title of that book. I was reading a superb historical elaboration of why the founders of our country did not want to include the name God or any reference of deity in the Constitution, though they did willingly make reference to our Creator in the Declaration of Independence. The title of the book I was reading is Our Godless Constitution. Does the author really mean that? The congressman said, I responded to his question by asking him a question. Do you know any place in our Constitution where the word God can be found? And instead of waiting for an answer, I said, it's not there. Uh, the member of Congress seemed perplexed, it, if not outright suspicious of me uh, because of the book I was reading. The founders of our government did not want our Constitution to rest on a deity. Wisely, they intentionally constructed a secular government. Outside the First Amendment, there is only one other mention of religion in the Constitution. Article 6, Clause 3 of the Constitution, which is called the No Religious Test Clause. It reads like this, No religious test shall ever be required as a qualification of any office or public trust under the United States. Do I have to tell you, far too many people have either forgotten or neglected that imperative. But yes, I also have to tell you, I, I really did think a member of Congress would know that truth. I wonder how many members of Congress know the First Amendment. We will defend and strengthen religious freedom only if we understand it clearly, treasure it tightly, and devote ourselves passionately to assuring this freedom is known, defended, strengthened, and enjoyed by everybody. We have to understand it 
to obey it. Religious freedom has to be rigorously equal or forceful in application, or it becomes an instrument of choice for those in power. Unfortunately, right now, short-sighted, self-serving, non-real religious or patriotic people are trying to redefine the meaning of religious freedom to an extent that we're crawling back to a pre-religious freedom government. That makes it necessary for me to make another point about religious freedom. Religious freedom is never a justification for ignoring another civil right. All too often, people have used their religious beliefs as excuses for bigotry, discrimination, and a violation of other civil rights. In the 1960s, Maurice Bessinger refused to let a minister's wife enter his South Carolina barbecue joint because she was black. He believed that, and I'm quoting, serving members of the Negro race would violate his sacred religious beliefs. He told the Supreme Court that the Civil Rights Act was invalid because it contravenes the will of God and interferes with the free exercise of his religion. Similarly, Bob Jones University denied entry to people who were black. The school unsuccessfully argued that discrimination was justified because it was based on sincerely held religious beliefs. This was in the 1980s. I actually got to sit in on one of the Supreme Court sessions of this argument. Such thinking still happens. This is exactly what is at issue in the claims for exemptions from laws dealing with LGBTQ plus rights. Every one of these hearings I've talked about preserve civil rights. Government cannot tell a church that it must wed gay people. But government can say that if you want to run a business, you cannot discriminate against customers based on race, gender, or sexual orientation. The courts have declared that businesses open to the general public may not violate anti-discrimination laws even on the basis of sincerely held religious beliefs. Let me talk about some hurtful attacks of historic amnesia. We forgot again. It happened early, and it's happening again. How did we forget what history has taught us about the importance of religious freedom? Do we not remember the Crusades that offered non-Christians the choice of converting to Christianity or dying immediately? 
holy wars launched by those who considered themselves most holy, attempts at theocratic people who ignored the importance of freedom of choice in any authentic religious decision, cries for independence that turned into boasts of sovereignty, uh, the so-called righteous burning of witches, and denouncements of non-believers considered un-American. How could we forget the importance of the religious freedom clauses in the Constitution? What happened? Or, or what is happening? How could we forget? Only multiple answers provide adequate responses to that question. And I only have time to mention uh, three of the correct answers. One, one problem has been the growing pluralism of religions in our nation that has stoked the hot destructive fires of majoritarianism that many people find irresistible. The United States is now the most religiously pluralistic nation in the world. The people we once called world religions are today our neighbors. The provision of the founders is astounding in its relevance, methodology, and effectiveness for this moment in our history. But numerous people are frightened by pluralism and threatened by uh, the reality that there is freedom for everybody. For many years, supporting religious freedom was easy. The No Establishment Clause was not a problem because in most places in our nation, there was an established religion. I, I would even say a state religion. But now, constitutionally, all religions have access to the rights that Christians uh, once enjoyed exclusively. Advocacy for the philosophy of majoritarianism. Uh, whatever religion has the most people should rule. Uh, that has been wielded like a sledgehammer trying to destroy the wall intended to separate the institutions of all religions and government. In the summer of 2017, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, comprised of 30 different countries in Europe, uh, Caucasus, uh, Central Asia, and North America, asked me to speak to them in Vienna on the subject of religious persecution. Now, I'm well aware that Christians are persecuted in various places around the globe. But I felt compelled to make clear that the persecution of Christians in the USA is a myth. It's not there. Here's what I said to those world leaders. Christians in the United States enjoy a level of privilege, acceptance, support, and religious freedom that can be found nowhere else in the world. And then I explained that what some Christians in the U.S. call persecution is nothing more than people complaining because Christians no longer get exemptions from civil rights laws. 
and have a responsibility to support justice among peoples of color, protect rights of members of the LGBTQ community and Muslim citizens. Christianity can no longer expect favoritism, only equality. Having studied and seen the terrible persecution being experienced in most of the nations to which I was speaking, I confess that I am embarrassed by any American in the U.S. complaining about experiencing religious persecution. As my friend John Meacham pointed out in his book, American Gospel, just because the majority of our population is Christian, that doesn't mean the USA is a Christian nation. Our founders had no intention of a Christian nation. Listen to these words in Article 11 of the Barbary Treaties signed in Tripoli on November the 4th, 1796, approved by President John Adams, one of our founders, and ratified by the United States Senate on June 10, 1797. I'm quoting, The government of the United States is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion. John Leland, one of the earliest Baptist leaders that came to America, said, and I'm quoting him, the notion of a Christian commonwealth should be exploded forever. Government should protect every man in thinking and speaking freely and see that one does not abuse the other. I hate to tell you, if you don't know, but several members of the United States Supreme Court and counselors to several presidents have embraced the fear of pluralism and found favor with the philosophy of majoritarianism. Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia, now deceased but whose thoughts remain influential, proposed that controversies swirling around religious freedom should be resolved by majority votes in local communities rather than by court decisions to protect minority rights. What a blow that would be to real religious freedom. But that same judge, along with Judge Clarence Thomas, still in the Supreme Court, have argued that religious freedom is a state's rights issue, despite the fact that our Constitution forbids the nation from trying to establish a religion. In 2016, the State Department asked me to go to Sri Lanka and negotiate a tighter peace between the diverse religions in that land. As you may know, for years that small country has been plagued by a bloody war um, inflamed by religious conflicts. The four major religions there are Buddhist, Hindu, Christian, and Islam in the order of numbers. For days I negotiated with groups of religious leaders across that land and worried 
uh, one-on-one with religious leaders from all the religions involved. Interestingly, I heard there the same arguments opposing religious freedom that I hear here. The religion with the most adherents ought to be the primary religion in Sri Lanka, some said. So argue Americans. Now beware, beware. Nowhere can a majoritarian philosophy and real religious freedom exist side by side. An event that contributed to our amnesia about religious freedom was the terrorist attacks of 9-11 that created pervasive fear that has motivated receptivity to the lure of an established religion. Fear is powerful. Robert Frost said, there's nothing I'm afraid of like scared people. Post 9-11 fear made different, just being different, synonymous with evil. A desire for security became stronger than a desire for the preservation of liberty. I'll never forget speaking to a stunned and troubled audience in Denver, Colorado on the evening of 9-11. While many of the people in this congregation were gathered for worship with our friends from Temple B'nai Israel, I was thinking about you and worrying about the possibility of spontaneous reactions to this crisis that would set aside our processes of justice. Ben Franklin's words came to my mind. I spoke his truth. People who will give up essential liberty to find a little temporary security deserve neither liberty nor security. In May of 1997, an educational official in South Carolina seemed to voice the attitude of way too many people. Angered because of objections to posting the Ten Commandments in public schools and buildings, whether or not that violated religious freedom, Henry Jordan declared, screw the Buddhists and kill the Muslims. Sadly, I've seen high-profile supporters of religious freedom suggest that uh, the principles of that freedom should be compromised in order to avoid controversy. How sad. A A crisis moment is the time when we most need to live by the freedom in the Constitution. Knowing that religion is important to the people of this nation, campaigning politicians began to talk about religion, a singular religion devoid of interest in religious freedom. That also contributed to our forgetfulness about religious freedom. While in Washington, I regularly convened meetings with political consultants from both major parties to question them on what would be the most used strategies uh, in an election year. After 1999, religion, knowing how to talk about religion, knowing how to use religion, 
That was always the best selling political pitches. Now, I'll talk about religion, political campaigns, and our government in the next lecture. However, I can tell you right now that partisan politics armed with religion is as, as a strategy has been devastating to the strength and integrity of religious freedom. Let me talk about a most dangerous moment. Religious freedom has never been just criticized and opposed. It's also been attacked since December 15, 1791, the day it became a part of the Constitution. However, I must tell you that right now, we face perhaps the greatest challenge to religious freedom that we have known since the founding of our nation. A persuasive, well-funded effort is underway to change the meaning of religious freedom in the Constitution. The strategy is to keep the same words, religious freedom, just replace the definitions of the words in our Constitution. Some interpret the religious freedom clauses in the Constitution to mean that people are free from, for religion, but they're not free from religion. Others argue that it is a denial of religious freedom to not exempt people of faith from obeying the law of the land and the mandates of the Constitution. The three groups that have been the most active in trying to bypass religious freedom as defined in the Constitution are the Conference of U.S. Catholic Bishops, not to be confused with most Roman Catholics in the U.S., the religious right, which is neither religious nor right, and a large number of evangelicals. These groups define religion as whatever they think religion is and insist that people be allowed to break laws in the name of religion. Again, be careful. No longer does everybody who says they believe in religious freedom actually believe in religious freedom. That defined in the Constitution. A constitutional amendment called Religious Freedom Amendment was introduced to the House of Representatives in 1997. However, constitutional lawyers warned the public that the bill in question was a blueprint for religious tyranny, which if passed would obliterate the separation of church and state and result in government-sanctioned worship, taxation to benefit religion, and majoritarian oppression. That's why I say be careful. Many people who say they support religious freedom oppose the First Amendment. These anger change agents give legitimacy, popularity, and constitutionality to their rogue policies of health care, federal funding, and other social services. They applaud druggists who refuse to sell a woman birth control pills because of their religion. 
hospitals and doctors that turn away pregnant women who desperately need help because the medical professional's religion views abortion as murder. Hotel owners who say they have no rooms for same-gender couples because their faith does not allow an affirmation of same-gender marriages. And now, the revisionists are demanding the support of federal money because they say they are doing charitable work. Any redefinition of religious freedom from a sectarian group that will benefit from the redefinition of religious freedom threatens all other religious communities and, and people with no religion. The anti-Muslim bigotry in our nation underscores the importance of this observation. I, I have read evangelicals' assertions that Muslims have no right to religious freedom, even if they're American citizens. People who will deny religious freedom for citizens committed to Islam will deny religious freedom to all citizens whose nation has a religion that is different from their own. Now think about that. If Muslims do not have the right to build mosques, six, the right to build gurdwaras, Jews, the right to build synagogues. Christians don't have the right to build churches. Is that the America we want? Currently preserving religious freedom in our nation is like walking a tightrope, which if we fall from, we will lose a freedom that we can't recover and find ourselves in the land in the kinds of religious battles that we see in other lands across the world. We won't lose our freedom through a dramatic event or a, a bold effort to amend the Constitution's guarantee. But we can lose our freedom as individuals, legislators, U.S. presidents, and the U.S. Congress daily chip away at the wall of separation a little bit at a time until we wake up one morning and discover one of our constitutional promises has been eliminated by judicial rulings and legislative enactments. God forbid, unless they hear us protest. We have a constitution that, if obeyed, can help us get along with each other, be a light to the world, and take care of each other. But we have not yet finished the work of fulfilling the promises ensconced in our constitution or of completing the nonviolent dimensions of the American Revolution. On the 50th anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg, where 51,000 Americans died. Soldiers from both sides united. The words spoken by a Southern chaplain that day resonates uh, in my conscience today. As I see the applicability of his words to our challenge related to the preservation of religious freedom, the chaplain observed 
These venerable men were willing to die that the people might live. Their task is done. Their day is done. They look to us to perfect what they have established. Their work is handed to us to be down. Their work is handed to us to be down. My thoughts often turn to the sick gas station employee, Bill Bar Singh Sodi, who on September 15, 2011, was shot down in cold blood by a man who thought he was killing a Muslim. A film entitled A Dream in Doubt tells the story. On several occasions, I have spent time with members of the murdered man's amazing family. The Sodis refused to hold all Americans responsible for the evil act of one American. Indeed, at the conclusion of the murder, the trial that ensued, the Sodis pleaded with the presiding judge to not give the death sentence, but to spare the life of the man who had shot their family member. One day I asked one of the brothers if the family planned to stay in the United States. He looked at me surprisingly and seriously and asked, why would we not do that? This is our home. We want to help build a better nation. Friends, we, we have issues to study, divisions to forgive, work to do, and a First Amendment that can bring us together if kept strong. Our founders gave us a treasure. Now it's our time. It's our time. And I'm not speaking hyperbolically when I tell you religious freedom is under such an attack that we could return to a pre-religious freedom constitution. In 1819, Thomas Jefferson said, the constitutional freedom of religion is the most inalienable and sacred of all human rights. Jefferson's earlier warning must be remembered and heeded. The price of freedom is eternal vigilance.